Hello, I'm Katie. And I'm Antonio. And we're from the PSC, a specialist consultancy dedicated to improving UK public services. This is our inaugural pilot podcast, and in this episode, we're focusing on leadership in crises, and specifically the impact of coronavirus in the UK. We've got two brilliant guests this episode, and we kick things off with our chair at the PSC, Sarian Carruthers. And Sarian was acting chief executive of NHS England, chief executive of NHS South of England, and he currently sits on the board of five healthcare organisations. We joined him from my office, which looks and feels like a sauna, and Ian's living room. So Ian, what have been the biggest challenges faced and how, based on your experience, have they differed from your expectations? First of all, I think it's important to understand the context where the coronavirus crisis is unprecedented. It's an, it's an unknown virus with no treatments and therefore no one knew how to handle this. Um, it was therefore very difficult uh, to establish a clear coherent strategy from government and to see that in advance. So the greatest challenge for me was the nature of the virus and the fact that it was very difficult to plan. And for that reason, I think much of the planning has been uh, stop and start and based on other pandemics, which may not be really appropriate. So that was a great challenge. The second challenge was uh, in the procurement field where we had great difficulty as in certain instances getting um, PPE. And the government were doing their best, but in general what they, tr- what they did was made the mistake of over-promising and under-delivering. And really issues like the quality of the stuff and so on uh, and the timeliness of arrival uh, are things that we need to pick up on. So that was a great challenge. And I think the third big challenge was that we didn't execute our strategy fast enough. And, of course, that's summed up in the debate um, that's taking place now. Did we enter lockdown too late and so on? And uh, there is some evidence to suggest that had we gone sooner, we might have been in a different place now. But, of course, all of this is with hindsight. And I think I don't don't think um, it helped that at this time we had a deficit of leadership. Prime Minister was ill. We had a problem of continuity and consistent of messages. Uh, And I think that we could have been more decisive at certain stages. So they were all great challenges uh, that that we needed uh, to deal with. And that's before you get on to the financial impact, not only on the economy, but on individual organisations. But thankfully, the government moved very fast and and, uh, bravely, I think, to actually um, tackle those issues. And then, of course, in an operational sense, the staffing viability was important and staff welfare. People were frightened. Uh, People were doing things where they weren't as confident as normal. And during this time, much of the workforce was self-isolating and not available. And there wasn't a testing system uh, to offer protection and speed. So those were the greatest challenges. Uh, But overall, I think people have responded fairly well. I think the public responded fantastically in a way that I thought wouldn't have been feasible. Um, And because of them and the other things, we've got to a position where things 
still look a long way to go. We're, we're only halfway through it, but we have a chance of uh, moving forward. I think all those things were really expected um, and we've had to cope with them at a time. And I think it was a, one of the big issues for me is a leadership question which revolves around this. One of the things said from the chief medical officer and the chief scientific advisor is that we maybe didn't learn the lessons of previous pandemics such as SARS and MERS some 18 or so years ago. Do you think there's an element that we were prepared but maybe for the wrong pandemic? Yes, I think that um, because we didn't know about the virus and, you know, I'm sure that uh, uh, Professor Whitty and... uh, uh, the Chief Scientific Officer, Patrick Valance, or Patrick Valance, I'm sure that in those comments that they've made uh, about uh, learning from SARS and previous things, whilst it's understandable, I think it's very difficult to learn while you're doing at the same time. And I think that by and large, people have done that as well as, uh, as they can. But in essence, the modelling and everything was based on a sort of... Uh, crisis we'd never seen before and that's why there is such the big disparity in numbers you know the 500,000 to the 20,000 in terms of deaths um, because we were modeling for a pandemic which really was flu and what we'd known before but I wouldn't be critical of that because people were doing their best at the time Um, I'll be more um, concerned about doing the right things, and I think we did do the right things. But I think it's open to question whether we did them at the right time. But of course, that is with hindsight. It's really helpful to remind us of the of the benefits of hindsight, I guess. Um, something we're hearing is people restarting physical outpatient services uh, and consultations, and, and it and it seems to me that there's a risk that we possibly don't learn what's worked well in this period. Um, do you have any thoughts as to how people can take, I guess, the, the, the relatively good um, changes that's that's been afforded over the past 14 weeks and how we can uh, make sure we keep keep what's good and lose what, what's less good, been less good? Well, there's, there's a few things to take into account in, 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 in the background to that. One is that we all have working styles that we prefer. And some uh, people will prefer doing things with technology, whilst others will want to deal face-to-face all the time. And I think that what we really have to do is to be uh, both accommodating of style, but actually mustn't risk going back to where we were and institutionalising old inefficiency. So I think you've got to come at it with an open uh, mind, learn the lessons, and challenge yourself to move on to the next stage. Because for many of us, um, you know, some of this is the next stage of development of ourselves as professionals, uh, as well as actually um, just doing things differently. But when, when you look at criteria like, is it easy for the public? Is it better for the public? Um, is it better for the professional? Does it lose its effectiveness or is it more efficient? They're the sorts of things I would be looking at to evaluate how we went forward. 
because equally many members of the public, just as I've said, professionals may have preferred ways of working. Many members of the public prefer, particularly it's a generational thing, this. Many prefer using technology, whilst others prefer face-to-face contact. And I think we should make available um, both, but in a way where we're better administered and organised so that we don't have a one-size-fits-all situation and we reinstitutionalize the inefficiencies that we've been trying to break down for years. Finally, Ian, a lot of people listening will be in positions of leadership in public service organisations. Are there lessons of leadership you feel can be learned about crises from what's happened? Yeah. Well, I think the first is is around uh, visibility. I think it's very important that the leader is visibly available to staff and communicating the message and does it consistently. In that way, credibility is built. Personal responsibility is seen to be taken. And um, the fact that those elements are there, that makes people want to follow and believe what you're saying. And I think that I think that, that, that is really, really uh, interesting. Consistency of message, but also consistency by the person of delivering the message because that's really important the next the next thing is and none of these i think it's reinforced things rather than made me learn new things but having a clear narrative uh, and a clear uh, communication strategy with no mixed messages and telling people the detail of what they need to do in this situation is really important because we could get into difficulty by leaving matters for interpretation. And I think that that's one thing. The other is effective execution and decisive decision-making. On all these things, it's better to go early than late. It's better to address problems early than leave them till they become more difficult problems or they're not recognised as problems at all. It's important to listen. It's important to engage and involve people in decision-making as far as you can. Uh, a great example of this is the schools, where you know the, the uh, trade unions weren't totally on board, but some of those things might have been handled sooner. Um, you need to have an appropriate management style. And whilst I'm saying you need to listen and engage, and I believe that very much, um, there are occasions where you have to command and control because that's the way that uh, it happens. Now, I actually think all styles have a part to play, and leaders who are successful will be adaptive. They'll be able to be inclusive, but also command and control and listen and act in different ways. So adaptive leadership is the key. And I think that we need to think about the messages to stakeholders. But above all, we need... Not to be distracted, we need to learn and evaluate, but most importantly, lead by example. The biggest damage in this is is done when you ask people to do one thing and do another yourself. Sir Ian, it's been such a pleasure. We're thrilled that you were able to join us for our inaugural podcast for the PSC and we can't wait to catch up again soon. Yeah, look forward to seeing you soon. Take care, stay safe and it's been a pleasure. So interesting. Listening to that just makes me extra grateful to the NHS leaders that have been leading the way during the crisis. 
So many of our clients exhibit those qualities that Serene talked about, especially in terms of practicing what they preach and leading by example when times are tough. Yeah, I completely agree. Also, so striking is that balance between command and control versus more collaborative leadership styles. And I think there's lots of good examples to learn from here, but it's such a delicate issue and balance. Well, given the uncertainty and scale of the crisis, it's kind of amazing how many parts of the NHS have actually been able to respond in such a focus and often quite united way. Okay, well, how about we hear from someone now on the front line and how leadership has felt to them during this period? Um, Katie, why don't you introduce our next guest? So our next guest is someone that just six months ago I was working with as part of a consultant team on a project here at the PSC. His name is Stefano Palazzo and as well as a colleague, he's also a trained doctor. In response to the coronavirus, Stefano has very dutifully returned to practice for a while to help on the front line and Antonio had a chat with him to hear about what he's learned so far. One of the things that we keep on hearing about is this the so-called you know, rapid digital transformation. And um, whilst we hear lots about that, about virtual consultations um, and more on the primary setting, what's been your experience, you know, actually within within the hospital itself of new technologies? So, yeah, I think that's a really interesting question. And I think what I have noticed through my own personal experience is that the the crisis itself has necessitated a significant shift in the way that particular activities are carried out. Um, And I'm sure a lot of people have experienced that in their own lives with with Zoom obviously becoming considerably more used in order to keep in contact with people and that sort of thing. Um, And actually, I've, I've had personal experience both pre uh, starting at the hospital and indeed through the through um, my work actually on the wards so if I think about for example before I even started working working in the hospital I had to go through a whole process of pre-employment checks and induction now under normal circumstances that would involve for example providing identity documents DBS and CRB certificates and doing all of that face to face um, and that can often be quite a painful experience and painful process, um, which takes up half a day the first day that you arrive on site. In advance of starting at the hospital that, I, that, that I'm currently working at, the entire thing was done virtually. So it was a series of Zoom calls doing the identity check and me holding up my passport, for example, to check that my face in the passport che- uh, checked out and also providing scanned copies of the various different documents that were required, which meant that actually when I turned up on day one, there was no slow process of going to HR and getting all of that resolved. And it feels like something that actually we were being quite archaic in terms of the way that we were doing ID checks, particularly within within the NHS. And anybody who has been through multiple rotations as a trainee will know how how repetitive and painful that process can be. So I think actually something simple like that would be really helpful to, to keep. And that's a use of technology that already exists to make the process that bit slicker and quicker. Um, then in terms of actually my experience on the wards, one of the things that's been really interesting is around actually how do you as a medical team or as a clinical team try to limit the spread of coronavirus and also the, the risk to staff? Um, and one of the things that actually you can do is, of course, limit the number of patients, limit the number of staff that are next to an individual patient's bedside, so that actually you're reducing the the, the number of patients, the number of staff that are exposed to a coronavirus patient. 
Now, under normal circumstances, you would have a ward round where you've got a senior doctor reviewing a patient and you might have one, two or maybe three additional members of the medical team there at the bedside as well, keeping notes and that sort of thing. The way that actually the, the, the way that we've changed the model just to reduce the number of patients at the bed, uh, the number of staff at the bedside is merely by using mobile phones and uh, headphones. So an individual consultant will go into a side room, for example, with, with a coronavirus patient or an entire bay with coronavirus patients, but they will go in on their own and the rest of the ward team will remain outside listening in to the conversation that's that's happening. And it seems like an incredibly simple approach, but actually it was born out of necessity and a desire to reduce the risk to other patients on the ward, but also individual staff members. And it feels like actually if I think about other patients pre-COVID that were that, that uh, had, for example, MRSA or C. difficile and uh, or those sorts of infections, actually it feels like this approach to reducing the risk of spreading healthcare-acquired infections in that particular case is something that we should really, really keep on. And again, it's using the available technology in a really simple way to, to solve, solve that particular problem. Um, and then I suppose that the third thing is, is something that you, you mentioned, Antonio, in the, in, in the question, which is around the provision of, of outpatient appointments or the, or the provision of non-face-to-face outpatient, uh, outpatient activity. Again, that's something that the respiratory team that I'm working with has really employed quite significantly. So even during this period of time um, with COVID, they have managed to maintain a large number of clinics and all of those are fully virtual or the vast majority of those are fully virtual. Um, And what's been interesting is that actually that's been well received by individual patients and actually well adopted by clinicians. So all of those pre-existing cultural and other barriers that people had to applying and using virtual technologies seemingly have disappeared, not necessarily overnight, but relatively quickly. Um, And I suppose as an indicator of how successful that has been, I was speaking to one of the consultants the other day who was saying their DNA rate, so their do not attend rate for outpatient appointments, has fallen massively with the virtual clinics compared with face-to-face clinics, which of course means that available resource, whether that be consultant time uh, or indeed actually use of clinic space if we were going to do face-to-face clinics in the future, um, is considerably better. So, Although there there is a question about what the outpatient model needs to be and the model of delivery of care needs to be, I still think that actually this period has allowed us to overcome a number of the barriers and a number of the cultural blocks to using virtual technologies on both the clinical side and indeed the patient side. And it would be churlish not to use the the experience and the momentum behind it to, to maintain that in the future. I guess reflecting back on, uh, you know, if you could rewind time, are there any things that you uh, wish that you'd known before or maybe even done differently through this, uh, through the last five weeks? When I was preparing to to go back to the front line, um, there were a number of different anxieties that were flying through my head. You know, I hadn't done clinical practice for a number of years and how was I going to adapt back to it and what was my knowledge going to be like and that sort of thing. So in advance of, of uh, starting at the hospital, I spent quite a lot of time 
reading about the treatment of coronavirus and and kind of trying to really get in depth about uh, how it is that patients with this disease are managed. I think on reflection, one of the things that I've realised, well, a couple of things that I've realised. Firstly, actually, the the speed with which the uh, knowledge about coronavirus and the best way to treat it um, has changed is is phenomenal. It's almost on a day-to-day basis that actually people are slightly changing their approach to something like coronavirus or, or the approach to dealing with various different elements of coronavirus. And therefore, by the time that I actually started working that, working on the wards, quite a lot of my the, the stuff that I've been reading was essentially out of date because I'd read it a couple of days beforehand and actually we were now dealing with things in a different way. So I think maybe if I hadn't stressed myself out quite so much in terms of trying to desperately memorise the various different treatment algorithms for coronavirus, I might have had a slightly less stressful uh, couple of days in advance of starting. Um, I think the other thing is actually, on the flip side, what should I have really concentrated on and, and what what do I wish I'd kind of spent a bit more time thinking about, fundamentally thinking about what my role as a returning junior doctor on the respiratory wards was likely to be, and actually preparing for that. So the day-to-day rhythms of the ward, making sure that I was prepared to do the absolute basics, probably actually trying to get in contact with some of the junior doctors who were already working within the hospital and understanding from them what my role was likely to be like so that I could be as helpful as I possibly could be as soon as I joined as soon as I joined the team. Well, thanks. And I, I know you've been very humble when you say uh, hopefully been as useful as possible. I mean, we're all at the PSC, very, um, but very proud and grateful for, for your efforts and everyone on the front line. So, so thank you. So the final question is just around what lessons do you feel um, we can learn about leadership during crises from your experience? There have been a number of things that, again, I've been really struck by coming into the coming into the hospital as somebody new and almost initially observing it as an outsider, but then actually becoming part of part of the organisation. The first thing is leadership by example. The level of personal responsibility taken by the consultants in the respiratory department, for example, and them making sure that there's 24-hour 24-hour cover really does set the tone for what the response is going to be from the whole team. And actually, if leadership is really about getting other people to behave in a particular way or getting the best out of other people, then I think that's been really, really fundamental because I've seen others within the team, junior members within the team, going above and beyond because they see their seniors doing that. So I think leadership, by example, is really, really key. I think the other thing, and this is this has been really notable, is the level of communication and the honesty and openness in communication from senior individuals, particularly the chief executive. So at the moment, he is sending out twice, twice weekly updates in which he is being completely clear and completely open and completely honest about the challenges that the trust is facing, the number of patients with coronavirus that they currently have, the numbers who have died. So there's no attempt to cover things up. In addition to which, he is being completely open and honest about what it is that they're planning to do in the future. So, for example, antibody testing or rolling out um, uh, rolling out uh, swab testing for for. Uh, for uh, staff members, even if they're not symptomatic, that sort of thing. 
And I think even if people aren't necessarily reading all of those emails in detail, knowing that they are being kept up to date on a regular basis in an open and honest way really engenders a sense of trust and faith from the staff. And again, that then makes them feel responsible to the organisation and prepared to go above and beyond in order to respond to the crisis. Um, and I think the third thing is is one about leadership at every level. So I've obviously mentioned the chief executive and the consultants within the respiratory department. But I can think of numerous examples that I've seen over the last five weeks of people at various different levels and in various different staff groups taking leadership within their particular area, taking, taking the initiative in various different areas and actually, regardless of their role, doing things that they feel will contribute to the greater good. And I think that that potentially is in contrast to some of the more negative elements of, a, of kind of healthcare culture or NHS culture, where sometimes there can be a tendency, because it's such a hierarchical structure, there can be a tendency to look to those above to provide you with instruction or a decision or a steer. And actually, people can sometimes be paralyzed there can almost be a sense of learned helplessness and a feeling that actually you can't take the lead within your own area because actually you need to wait for for permission to do that so actually that has been something that i've noticed and has been really really positive that's really really powerful and 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 so helpful to to get those insights um dr stefano palazzo thank you so much for your time we'll uh we'll make sure to to check in uh in a little while and we'd love to love to discuss further how you're getting on brilliant thank you oh i'm so glad to hear that steph is having an okay time yeah it was really positive from both uh, him and serene it feels like despite all of the difficulties we're facing and will continue to face there are also chances to learn things from better leadership and contingency planning to service innovation as well and you know virtual services that have had a real boost for instance well Actually, I got curious about Stefano's point on how non-attenders are much less likely for virtual appointments than for in-person ones, and I have a fun fact for you. So, the national statistics back up his point completely. In England, face-to-face outpatient appointments have a did-not-attend rate of 8% compared to under 3% for virtual consultations, so there's some good opportunities there. Good start. I really hope that when things calm down, we can help people to identify and lock in some of the positive changes that have come about. Yes, agreed. And on that positive note, it's probably time to say happy first podcast. Thank you for those interviews, Antonio. And thank you to everyone who is still here listening to the first of what I'm sure will be many, many podcasts from the PSC in future. Yes, there will indeed be more. At the PSC, it's our mission to work with brilliant leaders and together improve public services. And as part of that, we really want to amplify the voices of people that are doing such fantastic work. So please uh, sign up to our newsletter to to hear more from us about our work and insights. And please just do get in touch if you have anything that you'd like to share with us. But until next time, stay safe and stay well.